Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. I feel like a sitcom, like I got my own intro music just now. It's so great. (laughs) Thanks, you guys. Good morning, Denver Community Church. It's so, so good to be with you all this morning. If we've not met before, my name is Maggie Knight, and I am the children's pastor here at DCC. And I love it when I get the opportunity to be with you all uh, upstairs in the adult gathering, which is something that I get to do a handful of times a year and share with you from the platform. And in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I do feel like uh, when I come upstairs, I'm moving from like the kid table to the adult table. Um, So if I forget what I'm doing when I'm up here, that's because I I am lost. So if you guys will just cue me, okay? So you'll be like, this is when we pray. And I'll be like, all right, good. You'll be like, we're going to stand up now. And I'll be like, sounds great. I'm just going to follow your lead. And if I get confused, we'll just do a snack break because that's what I do downstairs. It works like a charm every single time. Anyways, thank you guys for being here. Thanks for being with me as we, uh, we spent some time together this morning. If you've been following along for some time, you know that here at DCC, we are in a season of teaching where we're teaching through the book of Luke. Honestly, I kind of feel like we're beyond a season. We're like in our Luke era, you know what I mean? <laughs> that is not a Gilmore Girls reference. We truly are in our Luke era. Um, As context, Luke is the third of the four Gospels, and it chronicles the life and ministry of Jesus. Luke's Gospel is unique, though, in that it emphasizes not just Jesus' power, but also his care and compassion for all people, and also highlights how he relates to women. Go Luke, an ally, right? Uh, We also get a more detailed picture in the Gospel of Luke of Jesus's infancy. That's different than the other Gospels. Uh, It's essentially Jesus's baby book. So we, that will be especially evident as we move into the Advent season, which, spoiler alert, is just two short weeks from now. Uh, So stay tuned for more on baby Jesus. This week, though, we will be drawing from Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. I will be reading from the screen because although I have an excellent memory, reading aloud is not my strong suit. It kind of triggers me and makes me feel like I'm in fourth grade reading out loud again. Um, So you can either join me reading from the screen or there's Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can pick one of those up and follow along from there as well. So it says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, 
or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But his, seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, first of all, that is tough to read for somebody like me. It hits pretty close to home for me because thinking about food and clothes is literally all I do. That's it. Those are like my two areas of expertise. So. I actually resonated with something that I read online this week that said I only worry about three things. What happened, what is happening, and what's going to happen. So that feels like me. And I'm trying not to find it absolutely apropos that I spent many weeks worrying about how I would talk to you all about the scripture telling me not to worry. My sermon on worry caused the worry. Yikes. Uh, shots fired, Luke. I am over here trying to figure out who scheduled me to teach on this passage, and do they or do they not think that I have an anxiety problem? <laughs> like, they're like, put Maggie on November 19th, okay? Um, you may relate to this. I struggle reading this and not finding myself getting really defensive. The central message here is not to worry, don't be anxious, and my immediate gut reaction to this is Jesus doesn't get it. He's tone deaf. Read the room. Come on. Like, you don't know me and you don't know my life, okay? Well, maybe a little bit. Uh, because when in the history of being told not to worry about something, have you then in turn decided not to worry about that thing? A simple, like, just maybe try not doing it is not effective. Is it patronizing? I don't know. I, I surely hope not. Because sincerely, I do think there's a lot to be worried about right now. If anyone in my life tells me how worried they are, my immediate reaction and thought is, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Solidarity, validation, yes. We are a worried people right now. We are fraught with worry in big ways and in little ways too. So on the bigger side of the scale, there's war, violence, death, politics, global warming. I mean, I am worried about that stuff, for real. And then here in our communities, there's homelessness, drugs that are killing our neighbors, loneliness, illness, isolation, division. I am worried about that stuff. And then you take things to a household level. 
I have three kids in my house, uh, so there's a lot of kid stuff, you know? There's like playdates, birthday parties, medications, meetings with educators, therapy, doctor's appointments, doctor's appointments, doctor's appointments, doctor's appointments, orthodontist appointments. Oh, and by the way, that's just when they're healthy. But also, like, do they have friends? Are they doing enough activities? What happens when they only eat garbage? Do they need more chores, more autonomy, more structure, less structure? How come my six-year-old doesn't want to ride a bike? Why are swimming lessons so expensive? I'm worried about that stuff too. And then you do the individual level, the navel-gazing stuff, like, I should exercise more, am I on the right meds, am I social enough, do I have friends, what's my financial situation, why do I have so many intrusive thoughts about home invasion? I don't know. <laughs> like, is something wrong with me? I'm worried about that stuff too. Are you forming your own mental list right now? I'm not encouraging you to do that by any means, but maybe that's where you are. And all that to say, there is a lot to be worried about. I remember a few years back, there was something going viral on Reddit where a husband asked his wife, why are you so worried? What is it that you're so worried about? And to fully illustrate her thought process, she drew an infographic of sorts and filled the entire page with different worries and what was on her mind. And here is what she drew. I had to um, censor a few things for church use. <laughs> I'll let you guys use your imagination. Personally, I haven't thought about Girl Scouts in a few decades, but to each their own. Um, but this makes me feel so seen. This is what my head feels like too. Or if you've been following along on TikTok recently, there's this idea that men think about the Roman Empire a certain amount of times each day. Yeah, honestly, I'm just as confused as you are. Uh, but the discourse then went to, if that's true, what is the female version of the Roman Empire? What consumes your thoughts that often? And in my experience, I thought, oh, maybe it's like body image or mom guilt. But the truth is that I worry so often about so many things, I think worry is my Roman Empire. I can't even get more specific than that. It's just that consuming. It feels like this. And that. I've got a lot on my mind right now. Doesn't that feel apropos? Like from laundry all the way to like the world is burning and everything in between. That is what it feels like. So it makes sense to be worried, doesn't it? We can agree there's a lot to be worried about. But perhaps what Jesus is saying to his disciples is different based on the context of the time. Obviously, they don't have TikTok and antidepressants and social media and chore charts and budgeting apps. So if that's not applicable, then what is? What exactly is Jesus telling them not to worry about? Well, food and clothes, first and foremost, we hear that. But beyond that, Jesus actually gets pretty specific here and uses a three-prong argument about why worrying is futile. Like, he's going to get bullet point specific. He's got a PowerPoint. Can you picture Jesus, like doing an Instagram reel. He's like, three ways to kick worry to the curb and like live your best 2024, number one, you know? <laughs> In all seriousness though, first Jesus tells his audience that there's more to life than food and clothing. He shares they shouldn't worry about what they will wear or what they will eat. Let me first say, for anyone experiencing food insecurity, that can be so hard to do. Hunger is physical, 
It's visceral, and it's almost impossible to ignore. When you get that level of hungry, it feels like absolute torture to try to keep your mind occupied with anything else. The body and the mind are wired for survival. They're wired to focus on survival, whether that's your next meal or how you plan to stay warm through the night. And since we are made by God, is it possible that this is actually not the case being made? If we're wired to survive and God wired us, would it really make sense for Jesus to implore his followers to do the opposite? And we really wouldn't even need to be worrying about our clothes at all if it wasn't for Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3-7, they're made aware that they're naked, and they sew the very first clothes. I can't tell you if they were flattering or not. Probably not. But are we not just dealing with the fallout of that ages down the road? We've been set up to worry about clothes since the jump. Instead, perhaps, Jesus is implying that your clothes are the least interesting thing about you. Maybe those lace-up sandals are hand-me-downs, right? Or the robes and tunics are last season. Or like, that staff is so tacky, right? He's saying here, don't worry about that. Don't waste another thought on that. We've got something more important to focus on. And perhaps instead of saying, don't worry about food, because the reality is we eventually die without it, but maybe instead we don't need to worry about how fancy it is or how much of it we have or if it's avocado toast that's worthy of a photo. All that matters is that God feeds you, you're nourished, you're alive, and anything beyond that shouldn't take up residence in your brain. This is an invitation to life beyond a mind consumed with what we're eating and what we're wearing. Because that's a lot of mental space that could be used differently. Not necessarily better, but certainly differently. So in his second point, Jesus touches on how God will provide you with all that you need. He brings in plants and animals here, flora and fauna. He uses what's called a lesser than greater device here. Jesus tells us that our divine creator cares about the ravens, so how much more is God concerned with us who are made in God's image? Well, first of all, I should hope so. I mean, I hate birds. I think they are disgusting. (laughs) And ravens were the lowest of the low at the time, and also now, let's be real. (laughs) They were not considered clean, so Jesus picks ravens on purpose. He picks ravens as a specific example for a reason. You could substitute in whatever thing you don't like. It could be cockroaches, rats, etc., etc. You get the idea. If God has that much care and concern for the least of these, surely we are on God's, like, MySpace top 10, if you feel me. (laughs) This got me thinking about something that I'm wondering if it hasn't crossed everyone's mind at some point. Have you ever seen a dog or a cat that is, like, living their best life? They're, like, fully enjoying themselves? I feel like when I see that, I'm like, man, I wish that was me. Have you ever seen a dog or a cat and you're like, I wish I was that dog or cat? Have you ever wanted life to feel that simple? Have someone else care for you, walk you, feed you, tuck you in at night, tell you you're such a good girl? (laughs) Me too. It looks pretty nice. Aside from the fact that you have to eat the exact same thing every day, that part seems kind of sad. But it actually seems pretty easy for plants and animals to not be consumed with worry, right? They have tiny brains or none at all. 
I'm not talking about your dog or cat, obviously. <laughs> and it doesn't seem like there's much for a raven to worry about. So it's easy for plants and animals to say. Yes, they don't labor and spin, but don't you think that if a tree had the mental capacity to be worried about being burned in a forest fire, it would have? And yes, ravens aren't worried about food, but we all know a dog that's on Xanax, right? <laughs> like due to thunderstorms. So it really isn't that simple. It's hard to say. And if those two arguments are not enough, which as a reminder are one, there's more to life than this stuff, and two, God will provide for you, he does kind of a mic drop with point three. He's like, oh, by the way, it doesn't even work. So why waste your one wild, precious life wondering if your holiday party outfit is on point? Or if someone will make fun of your tuna sandwich for lunch, right? Charles Spurgeon, a British preacher in the 19th century, says this, our anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, it only empties today of its strength. If worrying doesn't work, the argument here is let's not waste our time. And oh, I have wasted time worrying, believe you me. Recently, in my kids' school district, there was a committee built to consider changing the zoning of the elementary boundaries in our area, and one of the proposed solutions was to move our neighborhood to a new elementary school. And this would mean that based on zoning alone, so not even by our choice, my eight-year-old would be attending three schools by fourth grade. So like, yeah, I was really worried. I didn't want him to have to move schools again. So I got like a little bit involved. I emailed the board. I went to the public feedback nights. I filled out all the surveys, but I was still losing sleep over it. It was wrecking me. And here is the crazy thing. I could do absolutely nothing to change the outcome based on you know, how they make those decisions beyond what I'd already done, right? I was just spinning. It wouldn't work. The decision wasn't being made based on like, how consumed Maggie Knight was with worry. Like, we did it, Joe. We worried hard enough. We won at worry. That is not how it's done. Jesus tells us here, it doesn't work. And we've all heard the idioms about worrying, right? Let go and let God. As country music star and apparent muse of uh, televised NFL games everywhere, Carrie Underwood sang, Jesus, take the wheel. And we see it in these inspirational tropes everywhere. Here's a quick few that I found on the internet. We have the first one which says, all worry ends when faith in God begins. Or you can't trust God and worry at the same time. Or worry implies that we don't quite trust God is big enough. I love that they each involve a sunset or fog, right? Like, <laughs> but you get the idea. Generally, all the faith-centric dialogue about worry is just not to do it. There's no nuance. There's no instruction on how to overcome worry or how to deal with it. Just don't do it. That feels so problematic to me. Worry and faith are being positioned as opposites. But in my experience, they don't have a converse relationship. They coexist almost always. Have any of us in this room lived a life without worry? I would guess not. It isn't realistic to assume that when we start to have faith or we start to trust, our worry goes away. Some of the most worried people I know are incredibly faithful people. Faith in God does not equate to ease, comfort, being easygoing, flowing through life on luck and good vibes. Trusting God does not mean living worry-free. Trusting God does not mean living worry-free. So, 
If we know we shouldn't worry, but we're not being given any roadmaps or promising guidance on what comes after that, what now? Well, therapists are proving this out within their practices. The idea is that befriending your anxieties is the first step to overcoming them. Andrea Wachter, who is an author and psychotherapist, says this in an article titled, Therapists Say Beating Anxiety is a Matter of Embracing It. It's completely understandable to want to get rid of your anxiety. It doesn't feel good. But our feelings don't soften when we disapprove of them, hate them, or try to get rid of them. Rather, they soften when we offer them warmth and compassion and tend to the needs that they represent. In that same article, Dr. Monica Shaw, a licensed psychologist practicing in New York who specializes in mindfulness and acceptance-based cognitive behavioral therapies, says this, the more that we villainize something, the harder it is to manage it. Anxiety is going to be in all of us, evolutionarily speaking. It's meant to protect us. In the past, it would be protecting us from very real physical danger. Part of befriending it is understanding it and being able to work with it. Also to figure out when it is serving us and when it is not, when it's in line with our goals and our values. A few years back, my oldest son was given something by a family member to help like assuage his worries and anxieties. It's called a worry monster or a worry eater, and they're really very cute. They look just like this. I love it. I like Wanda, bottom right, she's so cute. So the idea is this. When the child is overcome with worry about something, they can draw a picture, they can write it down, and feed it to the monster. They literally like zip it into their mouth. The monster takes on the worry for the kid. Literally, just the exercise of writing down the worry, acknowledging it, feeding it to the monster, can alleviate some of those intrusive thoughts, some of that like ruminating and spiraling. And I'm here to tell you that my son, when we had a babysitter, this was before he could write, had her write down on a sticky note that he was worried about getting his penis stuck in the zipper of his footy pajamas. <laughs> True story. I mean, we all have worries. <laughs> and that's biblical, baby. Not the pajamas part, not the pajamas part, the acknowledging worry part. We hear in 1 Peter 5, 7 the following, give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. This verse on the other hand assumes that you will have worries. It's not if, it's when. So when you have worries, you know where they go. They have a container, they have a place. You can write them down on the notepad of your heart and zip them into the ever-loving presence of God because God cares for us. God will take our worries on. We don't need to hold on to them. You know where they can go when they inevitably come. As I was preparing for, um, for this sermon, the trailer for Inside Out 2 came out, literally like popped up on my feed as I was typing. Uh, if you haven't seen it, the first one is an absolute favorite. I swear it's therapy for kids and adults. In the second movie, which doesn't come out until 2024, so I can't speak to how good it is, and generally we're all pretty trepidatious about sequels, um, but they added a new emotion to the mix. If you saw the, the trailer, you know that they added anxiety to the plot. Even Disney knew that they didn't get them all there on round one. They knew that there's a universally experienced emotion that needed to be represented and understood, anxiety. 
So like that therapist quote said, we get to decide if our worries align with our goals and our values. And if our values are those of Jesus Christ, can we realign our worry to be more closely aligned with the concerns of God? The end of this passage has the most convicting, hopeful, beautiful sentiment from Jesus. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I, for one, don't want my heart to like marinate, ruminate in worry, or at least not to stay there. Do you all remember that worship song called Hosanna by Hillsong? I actually don't know if we sing it here anymore, but the line that always stuck out to me was this, break my heart for what breaks yours. Perhaps Jesus isn't chastising the disciples for doing these things, but instead is implying that any time spent focusing on these things is bringing your attention away from the kingdom, away from God, away from him. Not simply a call to rid yourself of worry, but to replace it with more worthwhile thoughts. It's like a sleight of hand, right? That could mean a faith that feels more realistic, more freeing, more authentic to you. It isn't that we can't have faith if we worry, but instead we can learn to worry better. Learn to worry with a Christ-like lens, if you feel me. Worry about the things that break the heart of Christ. I love the way that this is described in the New Cambridge Bible Commentary. It says this, His call is to replace fear with faith, anxiety with trust, greed with generosity. The call is communal and is placed on everyone, rich and not. The call is idealistic but also practical and is an offer of hope. Hope. It's not just idealistic, it's practical, and ultimately we should read this passage and not feel defensive like I did, but instead feel hope. Because can you imagine a people who took that communal challenge seriously. That would feel like a game changer. What if we determined we didn't want to be a people marked by worry? We wanted to be a people marked by grace and by God's love, which is to say people bringing God's kingdom into the now. We've had a tumultuous season globally, nationally, and even within the walls of this community. Again, there is a lot to be worried about. But let's not let worry have the last word and the first place in our hearts. Let's let our worry propel us into closer and more meaningful relationship with Christ. I'd love to do a little imaginative exercise, a little mini exercise. I swear I'm not going to make you turn to your neighbor. That's always my big fear. I feel like my personal H-E double hockey sticks is a sentence that starts with turn to your neighbor. (laughs) But... Let's spend a few minutes trying something. So if you would close your eyes, if you feel comfortable, and let's try to imagine a day in our lives without worry, without that ever-present anxiety. So start with walking through a typical day for you, from waking up to heading to work or school or caregiving, through each meal, and through all the minutiae and tasks that make up your day. Think through every move you make, every conversation, every relationship, all the way until you close your eyes at the end of the day. What would that experience be like if worry wasn't there? How would it feel different if that wasn't the primary feeling and experience? Might leave more room for God to speak and move, within our days? 
might leave us feeling a sense of hope that we haven't experienced before. Feel free to keep your eyes closed while I end our time reading a prayer over you that's based on excerpts from the book Every Moment Holy. God, I confess that there are moments when I cannot sense you near, times when anxiety and frustration overwhelm, and I find no help or consolation. I wish that I dwelt in a state where my hope and my confidence were always rooted and certain, my thoughts unclouded, but it is not always so. Here, I drag my heavy heart to see if you will meet me in my place of doubt and fear. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. For where else but to you will I go with my worries? You alone have the words of eternal life. This I know to be true, my Lord and my God. You are not angered by my worries and my fears. For they have often been the very things that lead me to press closer into you, seeking the comfort of your presence. In your presence, I can offer my anxieties knowing that you are never threatened by them. They do not change your truth. My doubts cannot unseat your promises. You are a rock, Jesus. You alone are strong enough to carry the weight of my troubled thoughts. O Lord, let these fears never compel me to hide my heart from you. Let them rather lead me into holy conversations with you. Make them into invitations to be present with you. Let me despair of my own knowledge and control and instead seek your face, knowing that when I plead for security and for answers, what I need most is your presence. In a world so interconnected, our anxious hearts have, are pummeled by an endless barrage of troubling news. We are daily aware of more grief, O oh Lord, than we can rightly consider, or more suffering and scandal than we can respond to, of more hostility, hatred, horror, and injustice than we can engage with compassion. But you, O oh Jesus, are not disquieted by such news of cruelty and terror and war. You are neither anxious nor overwhelmed. You carry the full weight of the suffering of a broken world when you hung upon the cross, and you carry it still. When distress unsettles us, remind us that we are but small and finite creatures never designed to carry all the burdens of the world, for our arms are too short and our strength is too small. God, you have never asked any one of us to undertake more than your grace will enable us to fulfill. Let us cast our burdens on the strong shoulders of the one who alone is able to bear them up. Amen. As we continue our time together this morning, we're going to participate as we do every week in Eucharist. Eucharist is a meal that we celebrate, often referred to uh, as the love feast in the early church because it was how God put on display God's love for everyone. And we're reminded that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, said this according to the Gospel of Matthew. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the table of God. This is not the table of Denver Community Church. And here at DCC, we invite anyone who is willing to come and participate in this meal to do so. We ask that as you do, you would either come down the center aisle or the very far aisles. There'll be two stations here and a station on each side. You can receive the bread and the wine and then return up the diagonal aisles. So please come as you're ready. Thank you.